0: Good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Thank you, Missy. Beautiful job. Take your Bibles. Turn to John chapter number 5. John chapter number 5 and verse 31. I have to admit that the first time that little baby moved on the screen, it freaked me out really bad. I was expecting it to just be a real still photo of a baby and suddenly the baby's hand comes out and it scared me a little bit. One of my favorite old movies is a western. I have no idea what the title of it is. But in this movie, a cowboy is set upon by a group of Mexican bandidos, federales. Or at least they were trying to pass themselves off as federales, officers of the law. When the bandits stated that they were law officers, the cowboy then asked them to prove it by presenting their badges. To which they replied, badges, badges, we have no need of stinking badges. Now, I love that quote. (laughs) First of all, because it's my only opportunity to use my really bad Spanish accent. And secondly, because it embarrasses my family. (laughs) Yet the truth is that, you know, we expect people to be able to prove who they are. In today's text, the identity of Jesus becomes the issue after he heals on the Sabbath. You may recall that Jesus healed a man that had been an invalid for 38 years, and he did it on the Sabbath. But instead of rejoicing in that miracle, the religious leadership concluded that Jesus was a lawbreaker. Jesus defended his actions by making some pretty amazing claims. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed equality with the Father. He claimed the power to give life and he claimed the right to judge which might lead one to say well then Jesus you're saying that you are God so upon what evidence do you make such a claim in the light of those claims it's only natural that evidence be given for those claims in fact his Critics have every right to expect that evidence will be presented to confirm his claims. Jesus begins in verse number 31 by stating that he he realizes and accepts that without proof his claims do not meet the requirements of the law concerning a true witness. He says in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself... My witness is not true. Now, Jesus is not, does not mean that his, his claims are false, but only that his testimony alone would not be valid in a court of law. If Jesus was who he said he was, then his claim had to be supported by other testimony. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15 It says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits, by, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. So, according to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, a single witness was not sufficient to determine the truth of a matter. So beginning in verse number 32, Jesus begins to present his witnesses. In fact, this section of scripture alone, we find the word witness nine times. Look with me, first of all, as there is the witness of the Father. Jesus says there is a testimony that will verify who he is in verse 32. He says there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So, who is the other witness he refers to? Well, you ought to underline the word another or circle it or indicate it somehow. It is the word Alas, it means another of the same kind. Well, who is of the same kind as Jesus Christ? Only the Father. God the Father is the only one who is of the same kind as Jesus. And Jesus is saying that God the Father not only sent his Son, through whom he is to be known, but he has in addition provided other supplemental witnesses. So Jesus is now going to present four additional witnesses to establish his identity. Later in verse 37 and 38, he again speaks of the witness of the Father. He says, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. So in verse 37, Jesus speaks of the voice of the Father testifying of him. It could be that he is referring to those occasions in which God the Father is heard audibly proclaiming that Jesus is his beloved son. This first happens at Jesus' baptism where we hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But that's found in the Gospel of Matthew. John does not record that event. The Father also testified audibly of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. When a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5. But again, John does not record that event. But in verse number 38, Jesus speaks of the Word of God. He speaks of His written Word or of Scripture. So Jesus will go on to indict these religious leaders for having studied the Scripture but never heard the truth. Not only the witness of God the Father, but secondly, the witness of John the Baptist, beginning in verse number 33. It says, you have sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. John was recognized as a credible witness because he was so widely known and accepted by the people when John began to preach people came from all over Palestine to hear him it was apparent that he was candid and and sincere and without self promotion John is also a credible witness because of his recognition as a prophet John is not brought forth here simply as a witness as in you and I might be referred to as a witness to Christ but rather he is a particular kind of witness a prophet Now, just because John refuses to be identified as the prophet in John chapter 1 and verse 20 does not indicate that John is not a prophet John in fact is a priest by birth his father was a priest, and he was a prophet by appointment of God. John is also seen as a credible witness because the religious leaders themselves had acknowledged the importance of John's witness when they sent a delegation to visit John and question him, which we saw in John chapter 1 and verses 19 through 24. John had fulfilled his purpose, which was to announce the arrival of Christ. John had identified Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. John had announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And John had even declared that Jesus was the very Son of God. The truth was, though, that people who were attracted to John, were attracted to John for a, for a while. But some of them grew tired of John. They listened for a while, but then they didn't like some of the things that John said and so they stopped listening. They listened for a while and then they turned to other pursuits, other things that occupied their interest. That's also true of us today. When we allow other things to take a precedence over the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. That we remain interested in the Lord only until something new comes along and catches our attention. Not only do we have the witness of John the Baptist, but third, we have the witness of the miracles in verse 36. He says, but I have a witness... Greater than John's, for the works which God hath given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, the works that Jesus is referring to are the miracles that he performed. These are not simply powerful miracles, however, but they are signs. Signs designed to point to Christ as being the authorized spokesman of God the Father. Of all the many miracles that Jesus performed, John only selected seven. Seven miracles or signs to include in his gospel account to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, the first half of John's gospel is called the, is called the Book of Signs because it is here that he records those seven miracles that testify of Jesus' claim to deity. The first miracle that we have already witnessed was Jesus turning the water into wine in John chapter 2. The second miracle was its healing of the royal official's son in John chapter 4. And the third miracle was the cause of this present conflict with the Jewish religious leaders because he healed on the Sabbath, this paralytic who had laid by the pool for 38 years. Now there are several things about the miracles of Jesus that should cause the Jewish religious leadership to evaluate the claims of Jesus. First, the sheer number of them. Although John only records 7, he does later say in John chapter 1, John chapter 21 and verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the world would not have the room for the books that would be written. So... There is the sheer number of them. There's secondly the greatness of them. Many of those miracles went directly against or contradicted the course of nature. There is also the public nature of them. All of these miracles were done in public so that people could see them. And there was their character. All these miracles expressed his companion, his compassion toward. Certain individuals, they were also signs to indicate his divine nature and his divine power. And there is the fact that these miracles were able to be seen and verified as being true. Later, the Jews the Jew said to Jesus in, in John chapter 10 and verse 24, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He answered them in verse 25 by saying, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And then later in that same chapter, chapter 10 and verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, Though you do not believe me, believe the works that you might know and believe. The Father is in me and I in him. And yet they failed to believe. In fact, they failed to believe even when one of their own, one of the religious leaders himself, Nicodemus, says in John chapter 3 and verse 2, the works that Jesus was doing could only come from God. But rather... Then attempting to deny these miracles, which they could not do, they tried to attribute them to Satan. Not only do we have the witness of the miracles, but fourth, we have the witness of Scripture. He says, you search the Scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me these religious men were devout they were highly intelligent men who knew the old testament backwards and forward they knew the old testament so intimately they knew how many letters were in the hebrew edition of the old testament they scrutinized every sentence of scripture And yet they are still strangers to the truth that it contained. It is one thing to have the word in your head. It's another thing to have the word of God in your heart. Jesus identified the major problem in reaching the wrong conclusions about his identity when he says in verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. The New Living Translation puts it this way, you refuse to come to me so that you can receive eternal life. The NSAB says you are unwilling. Unwillingness can be defined as hard-headed, obstinate, and inflexible. Even today, if someone does not believe something, We think that what they need is more information. But Jesus says the problem is not a lack of information. But an unwillingness to face the truth. What an awesome tragedy. These very ones who searched the scriptures. Who prided themselves on being experts of God's word. And in doing so thinking that they had eternal life, were not willing to come to the one that Scripture proclaimed. They rejected him. He was standing right in front of them. He was challenging them. He was inviting them. And yet they ultimately turned to him in anger, not in acceptance, all the while believing that what they were doing was being faithful to the word of God. Jesus gives a sad conclusion concerning them beginning in verse 42, 41 rather. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my father's name and you have not received me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from God? The religious leaders were not willing to believe even though they had all the testimony that anyone could have wanted. They were concerned with receiving the honor of other men, not the honor that comes from God. And the sad thing is their refusal to come to Christ was despite the fact that they had searched the scripture. The reasons for their rejection were fundamentally reasons of the heart, not of the mind. He says that you do not have the love of God in you. These religious leaders could hide behind the supposed intellectual reasons they had, but the real reason was the lack of love and desire for the honor that comes from God. Jesus prophesied that their rejection of him is going to leave them open for deception in the coming days. Deception from false Christ, he says, who you will be willing to accept even though they come in their own name. Subsequent historical accounts tell us that there were no less than 63 men who came proclaiming themselves to be the Messiah after Jesus who among these people gained followers. Not only do we have the witness of Scripture but finally we have the witness of Moses. Verse 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust for if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for I—he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you will you believe my words? In a trial, in our day, the star witness often comes at the end of the trial. Suppose a man is on trial for murder, and the evidence of his for his conviction begins by the district attorney bringing witness forward to demonstrate that the accused has the opportunity to commit the crime. And then a second witness comes forward to show that he had a motive to commit the crime. And then a third witness will come and prove that he, the accused had the access to the murder weapon. But finally, the fourth witness is the eyewitness of the murder itself and can identify that person as being the murderer. For for the Jews, there was no higher witness than that of Moses. There was no greater ability or authority to give a witness for God. After all, Moses was the great lawgiver. And because they so highly valued the law, they were sure That at least Moses would be on their side when the judgment day came. No matter who else might be against them, they were convinced that they could rely on Moses. What Jesus told them was nothing short of astounding. That on that day, the day of judgment, he is not going to be their accusers. Jesus is not going to be the one who brings accusation against them. It's Moses who's going to bring accusation against them. And notice he didn't say that Moses would be. He says Moses is. Moses is already a testimony against them. To read the law in the way that these religious leaders did was to miss what Moses was saying. The great irony is the very ones that these religious leaders counted on. Moses would in the end be their great accuser. We need to acknowledge this morning something that they failed to understand. And that is that the law of Moses was never intended to be the way of salvation. The Ten Commandments were not given as a means to be saved, but rather to reveal to men their knowledge that they needed a savior, that they were sinners that stood in need of a savior. Perhaps no verse explains that better than Galatians chapter three and verse 24. That verse says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by the law. No, that we might be justified by faith. Now the word translated in some versions as schoolmaster, some as tutor, does not mean schoolteacher. Schoolmaster is a good word, but it meant something quite different back in the days of Jesus, It meant a servant or a slave who was a part of a Roman household. In the homes of the rich in the Roman Empire, there were slaves who took care of the children. When a child was born into a home, he was put in the custody of a servant or a slave who actually raised this child. When this little one grew to a certain age and went to school... This servant was the one who takes the little child by the hand and leads him to school and turns him over to the school teacher. The Old Testament law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, won't take you to heaven, but they will point you in the right direction. When you finally come to the place that you see your hopelessness and your helplessness as a, as a sinner. The law does not save you. It is the one who takes you by the hand and brings you to Christ. The whole point of the presentation of these witnesses comes down to this. There is adequate testimony to prove who Jesus is. If anyone does not believe, it is not for the lack of evidence. It is because a lack of will. R. Kent Hughes points out that the inability to believe in Jesus is not from the lack of evidence, but usually because of moral deficiency. Finding the truth is as much a matter of the heart as it is of the mind. A man may say, I've read the Bible and I want to believe it, but it just can't. But further conversation reveals he's having an affair or he's shortchanging his boss or he's cheating on his income tax. He cannot believe while he is in that state. Nor can the woman who comes and says, I've been reading the Bible for years and I can't believe it. But she has an unforgiving spirit. The Lord's Prayer says that we are to forgive as we are forgiven. And that an unforgiving person is also an unforgiven person. So when we come to scripture, there must be a yielding of our lives. A focus not on self, but on God then we'll be able to hear what the scripture says to us. There are several things that we can learn from these religious leaders. We can learn that you can know the details of scripture and still miss the point, still miss the meaning. The apostle Paul warns in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7 that such people are ever learning, yet never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You can know the Bible and still not know the Savior. It doesn't matter how much else you know if you don't know him. And you may be wrong about Jesus, but you don't have to stay that way. Let's pray. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for your word that never changes that calls us to a commitment but help us to realize we can know a lot about the word and never allow it to penetrate our hearts and to change who we are there's one here this morning that maybe has been hiding behind that rationalization I would love to believe it, I just can't help them to realize that that's a Problem of the will, not a problem of lack of information. It's not that they haven't received enough information to know who Jesus is, but they're unwilling to do anything with what they have heard. Would you touch their hearts this morning? Help them to realize they can change that today. They can surrender their will to you, just as we as believers can surrender our will to you because. Sometimes we take back over control of our lives. We surrender our lives to you, but somewhere along the way we say, well, I, I don't know about this and I don't know about that. And we, bit by bit we take back control of our lives until we just have everything messed up again. Would you help us, Lord, this morning as we again surrender ourselves to you? Father, thank you for this glorious season in which we can celebrate the birth of our Savior and help it to be real in our hearts and lives and help it to challenge us to draw closer to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.